Their simple minds came up with a simple trick. We didn't count on simple tricks. And my son has been a great pains to point out to me that he came through this largely because of your training. You didn't fail there. A beginning is the time for taking the most delicate care that the balances are correct. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the IMMP podcast. My name is Matthew Porter. And I am Ian, son of Matthew of the House Porter. <laughs> I'm his dad. He's my son. Yes. As he just indicated. <laughs> and, uh, and we've read a book this time. We have. I've made it- him read a book. It's not, it's the, I think the second novel that we've covered on the podcast, the first being The Teddy Bear Habit. Absolutely, which is absolutely the same genre and style as this one. (laughs) Of course. Of course. And what we are talking about now is a, it's a novel that had a significant impact on me. And I think it is, it is admittedly timely that we're releasing this. Very often in this podcast, we have discovered that. Our timing happens to be fortuitous in terms of when we release things, like releasing our Ghostbusters episode on World Paranormal Day. Not planned, but it worked out. Or recording a um, uh, a show about Capricorn One close enough to the anniversary of uh, the Apollo moon landing that we decided to save it until then. And that, so, that worked out really well. And there are other examples that just uh, the timing was weird, but this one. Um, we knew what we were doing. We, 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 we know why we're doing this now, and I'm glad for that, because this is a book that I knew we would have to talk about at some point, but it was so important that I wanted to make sure that we would do it justice, so it was tempting to keep putting it off until we were ready or until it seemed right, and we would have put it off forever. The movie release schedule for next month means that on this episode of the IMMP, we are talking about Frank Herbert's Dune. We have media shadows the likes of which not even God can imagine. <laughs> there's going to be a lot of that in this episode. Oh, there's going to be so many of those. My goodness, this is one of those stories. It's It's one of those things where its existence in popular culture is a ripple that I watched still shaking through media when I was interacting with what was new. And it is, every time it looks like it's going to die down, it spikes up again somehow, and it doesn't actually ever quiet. Do I, I'm, I feel like I should have a paper ball handy. We don't have the problem that we had with The Razor's Edge, where you had to keep me from talking about the novel when we were here to talk about the, the, the movie from 84. But I'm here to talk about the novel when it comes to Dune, and there's so much other stuff to talk about. I want us to save that to the end of the, the episode. Absolutely. But it's hard, because it has had that kind of impact. And when I'm talking about Dune, I'm talking about the fact that it was the name spoken of like a a curse almost when adaptations hit media the book was this thing slighted and this thing to be revered and that's part of why it was this odd 
untouchable thing that like all the other science fiction I read is going to have influence to it. It's going to have to relate to it. Every time there's deserts in sci-fi, it's going to be some way related or noted. But you don't sit down and read Dune. You couldn't deal with it. it you wouldn't be able to handle it because it can't be comprehended. Not even other things can get it right. Dune is Dune is unapproachable. It is this behemoth. And so I don't go towards it. And, and, that, and no one else I knew really went towards it in that sense. It was known of, but it was, it was talked about in this silence. And this is how I felt about trying to do a podcast episode about this novel. And I've been urging you to read it for probably a decade now, at least. Oh, yeah. And I now I understand better why you resisted. I graduated high school, and I should, be, I should read Dune. I'm in college, I should read Dune. And I'm like... Really? I've been told this thing will break my brain. <laughs> and I'm supposed to do that in college? Wait, actually, well, that kind of makes sense with how some people approach college. But no, that's not me. Please don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it will break your brain. In not all ways of breaking your brain are bad. Yeah, this, I, I was, I, absolutely, it did. It kind of did. And I'm also very glad that I got to listen, read to it when I did, because I liked getting to know all the, like, I liked getting to feed it back into what I know of media instead of being a th person for whom I'm comparing everything I had been reading of media to it. I don't know for sure that I would call Dune something that I experienced too early, though that argument can be made, but I was definitely young when I first read Dune. When I read Dune, it was only... Three years or so after I read The Teddy Bear Habit. What? <laughs> but those are very, three or four years, and but those are very, very important years between 10 and 13 or 14. Those are. Those are very important years. <laughs> and that's how old I was when I discovered Dune. And I remember, I, a little tangent here, I bought my, the first copy of Dune at Corvette's. Corvette's was a department store, not far from where I lived. It wasn't a fancy department store like the ones at the mall. It wasn't a Macy's. It wasn't a, a Kmart or a Walmart. I don't think we had Kmarts and Walmarts, at least where I lived at that point. But Corvette's was like the place where it was our general store. Corvette's were, had a terrific record department. Uh, we've talked about you know, my record buying habits a little bit uh, in the past. Absolutely. Um, it, it's where, so it's where we bought records. It's also where we bought inexpensive stereo equipment. It's where we bought bicycles. It's where we bought jeans, but they also had a book section. We went to bookstores a lot, but Corvette's also had a book section. It was probably stocked by a jobber who came in and kept the shelves full for the, the store managers, but it was, it was fairly extensive and eclectic. Oh, that's good. And while my brothers were off browsing at something else in Corvette's one Friday evening, I, 13 or 14 year old me found this copy of dune and this is a book i had heard of i don't even know where i had heard of it now you hear about something well it was on the internet somewhere i don't remember where i heard about dune but but i had and i started reading the first few pages and then i immediately went and bought it You're and then it took me the better part of a year to finish reading it i i'm sorry i'm just gonna back up because the whole 
knowing of something without knowing how you know of it thing in relation to Dune is weird and terrifying. <laughs> and your story having that is like giving me chills in a way it shouldn't. So here I am spending the better part of a year when I'm 13 or 14. Already a kid who's way too inclined to think that he is somehow special. Reading Dune. Did I mention that this will break your brain, but not necessarily in a terrible way? Oh, yes. I can understand. So yeah, this, this, this book had an impact on me. As did Corvettes, but that's a different podcast, perhaps. We might have to do an episode all about Corvettes. We'll see. That'd be, I don't know how we do that one, but I'm intrigued. I'm... Yeah, I'd, I'd heard of it. It was one of those things. It's like I could get an English teacher to either say it with this, like delight or this sorrow depending on the context no matter what but it was this thing that existed and i knew bits of it i knew about the house politics aspects and i knew about the aspects of desert planet and the spice and the the spice is one of those pop culture things that is everywhere every fantastical super drug that will give you magic powers, which is a weird trend in pop culture things sometimes. Well, it, it was published in 1965. It was published in 1965. Will get compared to the spice. The spice must flow is one of those sentences that will just pop up in... I, I was seeing it on Gaia Online, and I don't know why it was there, but it like it just exists. And so I understood all of these. Weirdly enough, in that time between graduating high school and getting to now, I'd gotten into things more like tabletop board games and tabletop RPGs and such. And its influence there was very prevalent too. How you write grand stories of Political intrigue for your D&D campaign. Dune gets referenced to something you should read to know how to do that. The Dune board game is one of these touchstones of odd asymmetric gameplay that people reference in both love and hate ways. And I'd read and heard all about that, and so I learned more about the story from the board game reviews without before I'd even read the book in that sense. And so I'm just picking up Dune grain by grain from all these <laughs> other places until I finally decided to just no get the audiobook, dump it into my ears, finally get this over with. And I was bewildered and intrigued. Well, you've reminded me of at least one place that I had learned about Dune before I picked it up, and that is the articles in probably Starlog and science fiction fanzines and such talking about how much of Dune was ripped off for Star Wars. Oh, yeah. The desert planet, the galactic empire, the ancient order of those with special powers to control others. So much was borrowed by George Lucas for Star Wars. Yeah, there's a lot of influence there. We, we can't deny that. There is a lot of influence. But that that superficial borrowing, notwithstanding, they are worlds apart because Dune is, and I think Dune still stands as something unique. No, it's never been, it's never quite been replicated. It's not like it's necessarily the best science fiction novel ever written, but 
it remains distinct and unique. When I first started listening to it, I was I was like uncertain. By the middle, it had a very very clear tone to me, and by the end, I was almost more distracted thinking about how much more there was and how much how expansive it was than I was about how the story was ending. So I still don't know if I feel like I finished Dune. And, uh, yeah, and it is worth mentioning, and we'll talk about this more later. Dune was is definitely a standalone novel, but it became the beginning of a series of novels by, by Frank Herbert, and then an expanded universe that, in some ways, uh, may have gone off the rails. But um, But I kind of... I like how self-contained that first novel appears to be. Oh yeah, it 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 is a contained story and that is excellent. And it is another instance of the the two things in one, although in this case it's very much two books in one because we have the first story that is Paul and Leto and the the story of that and then there's this second story about Paul Atreides after everything happens, kind of leading up to the end, I think. But let me take a stab at something. One thing that that people seem to, um, one reason why people seem to hesitate diving into Dune is its its apparent complexity or its reputation for complexity. But in in rereading it and then listening to the audiobook also, which by the way is is very good, we should put a link to that. It's not perfect. Oh. And I've got some comments about that I might make. Oh, yeah. But it, it's worth the listening to if you like the book. But one thing that struck me is it's really not a complex plot. No. And spoilers for Dune throughout this podcast, of course. But I think I can summarize the plot pretty uh, pretty succinctly. Oh? I'd, I'd like to hear your, hear your attempt. Uh, how, uh, how long is your summary? I don't know, five lines or so. Okay. There's a galactic empire is a feudal structure. Its existence relies upon space travel, which relies upon this substance called the spice. The spice comes from a planet called Arrakis, Dune. There are two of the many noble houses that are bitter rivals, the Atreides and the Harkonnens. Uh, the, I think that's actually Harkonnen. I can't always Harkonnen. Uh, mispronounce that. The Harkonnens control Arrakis. The Emperor changes that and grants control of Arrakis to the Atreides. But it turns out that that was a trap, and the Harkonnens and the Emperor conspire to wipe out the Atreides once they have established themselves on Arrakis and retake control of the planet with this uh, spice resource. The Duke Atreides' son survives goes out into the wilderness of Arrakis, is taken in by the, the, the very tough uh, natives there, the Fremen, becomes one of them, ultimately becomes their leader, and as their leader, with the, that as an army at his back, retakes Arrakis and sets his uh, house up to be the next imperial line. That is a really good summary. So it's a basic, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's not that far off from the Lion King. Absolutely. Mind if I take a crack at summary as well? Please. I think I can do that. I'm going to play this, like, name that tune. I think I can summarize it in two lines, Dad. Yeah. 
Man gets other man stabbed over drug company stock trading. <laughs> stabbed man's son is the special, comma, learns how to be charismatic and knife fight so well he gets revenge. Yeah, that's good summary. <laughs> I like that. That's cool. Oh, yeah. But no, no, no. Yours at least had all the worlds and everything. <laughs> mine's, mine's reductive to the point of parody. But it, absolutely, it's, it's not too complex on some levels once you get down to it it's the depth it goes into all of those individual pieces that is intriguing the simplicity of of the overall story arc leaves plenty of room for things like weird and detailed world building none of which is just chrome all of which fits into this plot and drives this plot and yet is so intricate that it is it, it verges upon the impenetrable, but on the other hand, it is it's absorbing. The more you learn about this world, the more you feel like you're in it, and the more you can the more you can process. Yeah, the world is extremely deep. The the systems and the people not the individual people sometimes, but the the people's systems and the networks and the groups are so well defined and intricate that they have distinctions a story that requires enough questioning allegiances really needs such fine detail about what being part of each group is that you can have that flowing and that uncertainty and that twisting of what each definition means and who is with what over time it's it's making these very intricate gears just so that when they nest together and they don't turn right, that grinding has something to it. And one key aspect to this background, this world building, is the fact that there literally are no computers. Yeah. In this, the, the, the backstory to this uh, galactic civilization, which is um, tens of thousands of years in the future, there was uh, previously a jihad against thinking machines, and they were all destroyed and outlawed, and there are no computers. And that was, was impressive enough in 1965, imagining the governance and management of this giant spacefaring civilization with no computers. It means something even different in the 21st century, where we all have them in our pockets or on our wrists. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. To to pull in another film that's getting popular here as pop culture right now, the fact that when I was listening to the audiobook and they mentioned this Valerian Jihad getting rid of all computers and such, it was literally animated in my mind with scenes I remembered from the Animatrix. It's like, <laughs> there was something about that tie-in together. It's like, my goodness, we've gotten so much more intense visuals for exactly what this is describing, thanks to other media now. And that makes that even more terrifying to me. It's, it's that, um, that domino effect of this kind of, the kind of influence that a work like Dune has had. Exactly. Uh, and within the setting of Dune, some of the things that have happened as a result of that are there are certain people whose ability to collate data and calculate has been trained and honed the the mentats they are essentially human computers but also something that struck me on this most recent reread is the fact that there are places where it's explicit human intelligence overall has increased yeah 
over time, over dealing with the greater and greater complexity, certainly those who are involved in the the management of of this and the governance of this civilization, and it's it's hereditary. We're starting like where everybody involved in these complex political machinations is uh, is well above a genius, and that 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 adds a certain sharpness to all of the plots and all of the the back and forth. There is questions I've seen about the concept between uh, human ability to store information versus processing speed, and I would have to dive much deeper to be able to give specifics on this, but I've seen debates, I've had debates about this as a concept, how we have computers, we store our stuff externally, we store them in books and in paper, so the people can be faster at computing and spend less of their mind on retention. But when you get rid of computers in this way, there's this weird balance of that retention versus computing power. And you see people who know and remember so much or are finding ways to get around having to so that they can spend their time calculating faster. And I liked that. And we do see some interesting storage uh, technologies that are described. There's lots of interesting technology described in the background and the setting of these books. But they do have what they refer to as film books, which I guess are kind of an, an, an e-book, but they're not computerized, of course. It's just storing things on some kind of film. And there are electrostatically manipulated, super micro-thin paper books that can store a huge amount of information in a small period, of, it, a small volume with built-in magnifiers and the like. It seemed like it was a, a world full of microfiche. Yes. It's like like you 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 can put a light bulb and a magnifier together and store everything like that. But the moment you get too much more complex than the card catalog to find what you're looking for and pull it into that device, you've gone too far. Stop there. And that and but also the the way in which the the government by hereditary noble houses is presented, it does have kind of an early 20th century European feel to it to me. Oh, yeah. And a little pre-World War I sort of feel to it. I mean, yeah, there's, there's absolutely so much of that. I mean, it's, it's imperial nations concerned about a spice trade. This is so much of history that it's <laughs> terrifying. And uh, in, in addition to the, the emperor... And these noble houses, there are other organizations and groups of people who are vying for control in their unique ways. One is the Spacing Guild, the guild who control all interstellar travel. I actually, I realized on this uh, reread, apparently all spaceflight, not just interstellar, because they were controlling where satellites were allowed to be launched and uh, used to monitor planetary surfaces. And the guild has this control over spaceflight, so everybody needs the cooperation of the guild, and the guild has very strict rules. Two mortal enemies can have their frigates in the hold of a, a highliner that goes inter, uh, on interstellar trips right next to one another, but they better not even look at each other funny, or they'll never be allowed to uh, travel in space again. You, you want to find one of the most subtle examples of Dune impacting the rest of popular culture? The number of sci-fi things, books, uh, games, TV shows, other things, where 
someone is trying to set up an organization in space flight and they consider the name the spacing guild and there's just this beat beat pause and then they turn and go to whatever the actual name will be i have run into it three times now and i'm like i never got that and then i hear that at the start of him like ah dang it it's here from here it's another thing from dune and the spacing guild relies on the spice from arrakis because that's what gives them the ability to navigate and manipulate space for these interstellar journeys it's this is a setting in which like we said there are no computers to augment human information processing and and retention but there's a lot of chemical assistance to human abilities between the the juice that the mentats use to increase their processing speed their thinking speed to the spice that the spacers use to give them the the psychokinetic ability to fold space yeah, that's one of those things about these sort of science fantasy things I don't quite get. I mean, uh, an entire society using external stimulants in order to properly function and do the tasks set before them, it just, I don't get it. You okay on coffee? Yeah, I've got plenty. Great. Thank you. And then in addition to the Spacers Guild, the Spacing Guild, there is the Bene Gesserit. This is a, a female religious or quasi-religious order. That has done a lot of very interesting things. And this is, again, thinking back to the fact that this was published in 1965, this is an interesting way of exploring female power in an intensely political society. Because apparently the hereditary rulership under these great houses is male heredity. But the Bene Gesserit have been for millennia deciding who should marry whom and who should have what children uh, among these great houses to manage alliances among the houses. It's, it's very eugenics, and we can talk about that as well. Yeah. But it's very much we want to breed superior humans and eventually get to the, um, the theorized ultimate person, the, the Kwisatz Haderach who will be a male with the powers that the Bene Gesserit have and be able to like unify those worlds. And yeah, there's a whole lot of a whole lot of things that get mixed up in that part of the narrative. They are very intriguing and they result in some of the most interesting plot twists and lines and characters and interactions, I think. You've got to pick apart a lot of what's going on through them sometimes. I mean, they give us the wonders that is the the fear is the mind killer speech, which is another thing that pops up in pop culture everywhere. I mean, <laughs> I I have seen that I have seen that pop up as like a battle cry when people are charging into Pokémon fights. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. It doesn't make sense, but it's, <laughs> it exists and that's a thing. And the Bene Gesserit are shown as being extremely powerful and extremely capable 
Now, the individuals have amazing martial arts skills. They have the ability to use the voice, which can essentially it's tuning your voice. It's like neurolinguistic programming at, at a tremendously high level. You can control what someone else is going to do uh, by speaking to them Auto in, in a certain way. And and yet the story, the launch of this story hinges upon the fact that one of their carefully set plans goes awry. Because we're fought the good guys in this story essentially are the House Atreides and Duke Leto, who's now given control of Arrakis. And his consort hasn't married her because he needs to keep that option of marriage open for potential alliance, or at least the idea that there might be an alliance through marriage with another house. But they are, um, you know, they are in love. They are, for practical purposes, married. And she bears him a son, an heir. And she had been instructed by her Bene Gesserit um, trainers that she was supposed to bear a daughter, only daughters, to the Atreides. Because they wanted to get to marry a an Atreides daughter to a Harkonnen son and unify those houses and bring together the different strengths and unique characteristics of those two bloodlines towards their goal of creating this Kwisatz Haderach. So if Jessica had done what she was told, this story wouldn't have happened. Instead, she has a son, Paul Atreides. The ducal heir. The ducal heir, Paul. Ah, Paul. Our our main character for most of the books. A a point of view character for a large percentage of it. I've got thoughts about Paul Atreides. <laughs> what are your thoughts about Paul Atreides? It took me a bit to get through it, because the first half of the book, there's a lot of him really confused and really uncertain of what's going on, and kind of getting into stuff and a lot of like what if what is happening to me what has been done to me why am i like this as he deals with the fact that he has got this benny jesuit side to him he's got some mentat side to him based on training he was given he's got these strange premonition visions that are coming to him because of weirdness there's a lot of stuff happening to him but underneath it all, I had this terrifying realization that I kind of know this guy. He really reminds me of the sort of people I would, like, hang out with in high school. <laughs> the people who would, like, hop the fence at the football field with me and we'd go to the mall. These were the people who would shop at Hot Topic. I never went in, but he would. We'd wind up playing Yu-Gi-Oh! at the tables at the cafe at Barnes & Noble. It's like, I know this guy, and I don't know what I can do about that. Because <laughs> it kind of bugs me. He's the right... I'm saying that in the... Paul Atreides in the early aughts would have had a chain wallet. He's that kind of guy, and I don't know what to think. Oh, wow. I never... I never <laughs> saw that kind of thing, because he seemed so... He was so trained in being a a leader and a politician and yet he never quite followed the rules I yeah mean, he it's like he 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 would he there was just something about him that bugged me i i saw him more as he's the kind of guy who would you know he'd wear his military boarding school uniform properly but he'd have a a black flag pin hidden under the lapel okay maybe <laughs> but that's interesting my your, your reaction was i know this guy my reaction reading this at around 13 was, 
yeah, Paul, I know what you mean. <laughs> they just don't understand people like us. You know, a little more, a little karate and a little sword fighting, and there really wouldn't be that much difference between us, would there? So, yeah, I understand. Oh, you're kidding me. <laughs> I kind of find that funny because I'm here just like, wait a minute, there's a wisecracking guy off to the side doing what he does until he dies gloriously in battle and everyone just does nothing but talk about, that guy was awesome. I kept thinking, I want to be Duncan Idaho. He's, <laughs> he's this like, he's he's constantly just like, why am I here? And when something goes wrong, he's the first guy to snap to attention or have a story about how he's seen this before. I kind of liked him. He's this jack of all trades that no one doesn't want. I totally get that. And I think that is a, a indication of the fact that you were older and much more mature okay. coming to this novel for the first time than I was. Oh, that makes some sense. But as you say, most of the novel is following uh, Paul Atreides as he survives the attempt to wipe out the Atreides uh, on the Dune. The Atreides of the Atreides. <laughs> yeah. And then he he survives thanks to the Fremen and becomes one of them, becomes their leader. And you're right, he has these visions, he has all these powers that he's been trained with as well. And, spoiler, it does turn out that he is the Kwisatz Haderach, like a generation earlier than the Bene Gesserit expected. Surprise, I'm here! Oh no! <laughs> There's a lot of that at the end, and a lot of like, wait, no, no, this can't be happening. <laughs> All of my calendars say you shouldn't be here yet. What's going on? And in the end, then you have Paul with his army of Fremen that he's leading, and he's essentially become not only their political leader, but their uh, um, a messiah figure. Oh yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, messianic colonialism critique that you could bring to bear on this as well. But he's leading this army of Fremen who are toughened fighters who have, whose civilization has developed and who has individuals have grown on this extremely inhospitable planet. There is, water is incredibly scarce on Dune. Like the planet wants to kill you in, in a bunch of ways. The lack of water, the existence of gigantic sandworms, and it has made this incredibly tough people. And they are finally some uh, group that can stand against the Sardaukar, who are the emperor's fist. The reason the emperor can, can maintain the control he does is that ultimately he can bring to bear his soldiers, the Sardaukar, who have been groomed and trained on an incredibly inhospitable, tough prison planet. So finally, this, the, the Fremen... Uh, provide Paul with something that can stand against Sardaukar, which is how he eventually retakes Arrakis and pressures the the Emperor into teeing him up to be the next in line. I was so glad I listened to Dune during the summer, because it being so hot out, with me doing my day job uh, and grabbing a water bottle and taking a sip as I'm listening to, like, how important it was to have that bit of water in the story. And it's just like, suddenly this big water bottle I've got just feels like I'm holding this super valuable thing because of how <laughs> it's been described to me. I'm like, oh. You can really appreciate that. Yeah. Huh? Like, if I was listening to this and it's like snowing outside and I'm next to the fire, it would have nowhere near as much impact as if you do this 
during the middle of summer when it's hot, when you're feeling it, because you'll be like, oh, I get you. I understand. <laughs> My goodness. Oh, wow. Growing up in the Northeast and then moving to Colorado, um, it gives me a certain frame of reference about moving from the the very lush world of Caledon to Arrakis, the way the, the Atreides did. And there's there that's another part of the world building that's so great because there's a lot of focus. There, there's there's ecology and world building, literally. Like how the world functions as a planet. Irre- like absolutely without a care for the humans that have arrived on it. How the planet exe- itself functions and survives and how people then have to survive around it is so important there is so much nature is the thing that will not give a dang about any of this it doesn't matter who you are it doesn't matter what house you're from or whatever nature will hit you with the same rock and it's whether or not you make it after getting hit (laughs) with the rock is the important thing it's kind of like um you know universal movie monster monsters versus Lovecraftian horror type monsters. The world of politics in Dune is more like the universal movie monsters. There's something powerful and scary and it's out to get you. Sometimes it seems dead and rises back. Yeah. And, and yeah, the world of politics in Dune for these people in these um, ruling houses is very fraught and very dangerous because there are people conspiring against them. The planet Arrakis, it does not care. It does not notice you. You mean nothing to it, and it does not provide what you need to survive. There's plenty of times when you don't want it to notice you. Being able to be very careful and act like you're supposed to be there in nature, because otherwise, nature will find you, and nature will send a giant worm to eat you, because if you're not supposed to be there, your food <laughs> is is such a powerful part of this. It There's a lot of, like this hiding and this learning from what's going on around you in that sense. And one thing that's very important in Dune is that ecological sensibility. And that, I think that was a big driving factor for Frank Herbert in writing this was, was the ecology in all of it. And that's represented by Aliette Kynes. Yes. The character who does not survive the book, but he kind of embodies and expresses the ecological uh, approach to to this planet and the fact that with the right planning we can and carefully collecting and deploying water the little water that there is we can start a domino effect that would transform this planet and make it so much more hospitable and there are forces that would attempt to to put a stop to that or get in the way of that or, or, or exploit it. So they're trying to keep that secret, but that's one of the great things the Fremen are doing at the direction of this uh, Liet Kynes. And the, the, the death of Liet Kynes, that scene in this most recent rereading, it had a much bigger impact on me than it had before. I think I finally got much of it that I didn't get. In oh, the yes. Past. Uh, we always give a spoiler warning in some form, but I'm going to give another one. Uh, Big spoiler about Dune. 
spice is from the worms. <laughs> if you get rid of the duneness of Arrakis, if you get rid of the dunes in Dune, there is no spice, and that's the danger. Right. So in order for the people to be okay, they have to get rid of the thing that got the people there. Water in all but tiny quantities is poisonous to these giant sandworms. But this, as you say, the sandworms are necessary. They create the spice, which is why they probably try to. It's probably why they try to eat the machines that are sent out into the desert to harvest the spice. So spice harvesting is a kind of difficult thing. Yeah, the whole spice harvesting scene is really interesting. It's this like brilliant. That's one of those like most sci-fi bits of sci-fi they've got with these giant machines and this industrial process going on and this very much like it turns into a nautical rescue but on ground and sand oh that's that's a great a great point it's like trying to like how many uh, men will go down with the ship kind of thing right can we get to this before the whale finishes breaking up the ship can we get enough boats to it to get people away yeah or or will the boats that we send be uh be destroyed as well and th there's a lot of the the sand as ocean kind of metaphor in a lot of things. There is the sand is this impenetrable solid object to these great houses coming in who think of it like land and the fremen are treating it like waves and water and ripples and they're sailing across it with creatures and they are the it, it, there is a much more nautical ocean faring style to their way of getting across that really puts them in in sharp contrast and you can see that in the the words that are used to describe them on each side and that is very interesting i never thought of it that way but it is interesting in part because that is a an analogy that would be absolutely impenetrable to the fremen the people of arrakis they would be comparing this to an ocean. Like we, we literally have scenes in the book where Paul is sharing poetry from his home planet of Caladan with his uh, his Fremen bride, Chani. And he's got to explain, like, what is an ocean? What is a beach? What is a seagull? These things that just mean nothing to someone who grew up in Arrakis. The idea of water in anything more than a uh, um, a small quantity with the exception of these reservoirs that they are secretly and religiously gathering and maintaining. It's just bewildering. And yet it's this caves and outcroppings, these beach front, these kind of, you know, almost like beach settlements built into the rock at times. There's the way that they talk about moving across the sand, and it just had that nautical feel to me. That's true. They have to find and, and build settlements in these rocky outcrops, uh, where they're safe from the sandworms who could just burrow through the loose sand of the dunes. So they are, those are like islands and these little archipelagos. Yeah. It it fits. It, I like that. <laughs> and it, it, that weird that weird contrast just, it kind of struck me partway in, and it it was part of what was made this compelling to me. Oh, and you're talking about the um, the, the the boat analogy and that scene near the beginning where they're uh, where the Duke and his men are, are rescuing the crew of a spice harvesting machine because a sandworm is on the way. Uh, those They're using aircraft, but the aircraft they're using are ornithopters. 
They're uh, not using um, fixed-wing aircraft. They're not using helicopters, not using rotary-wing aircraft. And there's just enough description to make the ornithopters seem just like a really cool idea. An ornithopter being a a flying machine that flies through flapping its wings like a bird. Oh, I, I was going to say it was a zero-cost artifact with uh, zero attack and two toughness, but that's because I play too much Magic the Gathering. <laughs> Figures there is a Magic the Gathering card for ornithopters. Oh, there's so many reprints <laughs> of that one. I knew of it because of that, though. It, another instance of Dune kind of impacting a lot of other pop culture. So what we've got with Dune is is a relatively straightforward plot but layered with world-building and layered with complexity of the organizations involved and the individuals. We get a lot of really complex, well-presented individuals, both inside characters like Duncan Idaho and Gurney Halleck and the other uh, members of, um, of the Duke's uh, court and military and Paul and his mother, Jessica, of course, and their journey and in, in going out and living with the Fremen, the Fremen themselves. We get a little bit less detail about the Fremen. I don't know that we often get them as point of view characters, for example. Not much. We get a weird amount of Princess Irulan point of view, thanks to her interest in the beginning, to the point where I started finding them funny. <laughs> <laughs> and Princess Irulan is the daughter of the emperor. Yes. And, of course, becomes a major factor late in the, in the story. Dude, where's my sandworm? And other hijinks from the, li- from the life of Moabdib, written by Princess Irulan. <laughs> Every chapter has this, um, begins with a quote from one of the apparently many, many, many books written by the Princess Irulan about uh, Paul Atreides, who is later known as Moabdib, his uh, Fremen name. <laughs> uh, but... Like it, it just became a format I could run with. <laughs> and that's another interesting bit of world building. There's this foreshadowing through the entire thing about how important this character is going to be, how this is going to, you know, it's not going to end. There are certain ways, you know, it's not going to end because all these books have apparently been written about him. Yeah. it It's one of those weird things where a lot of other stories, it would cut the tension in order to be like saying things that inevitably show he's not going to die here. But instead, the gulf between the situation he's in and where that opening from this chapter said he'll wind up somehow is so staggering that you wonder how he's going to get there. It's not a if he'll die, it's a how does he survive this well? How is this going to play out? Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me of how the show NCIS would give a black and white still of the last uh, moment before the commercial break or the end of the episode, at the start of the section you're watching. So you're like, how do we get to that freeze frame? It's the same sort of like, that's odd, I don't know what to think, but it's... I get that, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So as as a story that has essentially a simple plot, layered with world building and characters... It's it's what puts it up there with, I would say, Lord of the Rings. Puts it up there with um, Song of Ice and Fire. Okay, yeah. These things that are, they, they are big sagas, partly because of where they take place and how that is portrayed, how that is described. 
I can definitely see that. And there's, it's, it's, it's a story large enough that the what if becomes interesting. That's something odd to say, but it's like, you can, you, you wind up saying like, I, I wonder what would have happened if this happened instead there. And the fact that the story won't go there, but the world is big enough. You can wonder that is nice. <laughs> my, my comparison is reminding me of that joke about you know harry potter fans oh i want to go to hogwarts lord of the rings fans oh i want to go to the shire game of thrones fans nope i'm good thanks we're cool never <laughs> yeah. mind dune i could see it going either way i think i do not want to be in this galactic imperium world from dune um but uh, but I could see why there's just enough spectacle and enough that's fascinating about it. It would be an amazing place to visit. Oh yeah, I I want to be uh the per- I want to be the person who is uh getting the castle they leave at the start instead of having to go to Arrakis with them. <laughs> it's like someone's got to take care of that place while you're gone. That'll be me. Send me a postcard. Does Warner Brothers still have any theme parks? I don't think they've got their deal with um, Six Flags anymore. I don't know where they're at. Because I was imagining somebody creating a an immersive resort around Dune, the way Disney now has the uh, the Star Wars Galactic Cruiser. <laughs> I'm sorry. Halfway through your four day visit, they drive you out to the uh, California desert and they drop you off, and that's the next two days of it if you follow the <laughs> plot of the movie. In or, the stories, <laughs> if or, you follow the plot of the book, or everybody takes their rooms in the resort, and then just as you're getting settled in, the people who were at the resort previously come in and wipe you out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I don't think a Dune resort would work. It's the fact that the it's the fact that the guy who drives you to the place literally has to be on something to get the car going is a problem too. <laughs> I'm sorry, we can't go yet. I haven't taken enough drugs. <laughs> No. Yeah, that's that's the time to cancel that Uber ride. I will say the number of times they talked about the fact that the spice has this cinnamon nature to it made me really crave snickerdoodles listening to this book. <laughs> I don't know why. I'm just like, I want I want cinnamon. <laughs> like, I want a bowl of cinnamon toast crunch and then a snickerdoodle <laughs> after my sandwich at lunch. And like, I don't know what's going on. Now, I'm imagining an entire galactic civilization that depends upon Cinnamon Toast Crunch. I could believe it. The CTC must flow. (laughs) But, uh, you know, if we're talking about spinoffs like resorts and such, I think maybe we're starting to get to our uh, our final questions and all the ideas that those might spark. Ah, yes. So, um, the first uh, first question is, is read or no read? I'd say read. It was weird. It was interesting. I enjoyed it, but I think, I mean, you're getting into something. Be prepared is kind of the point I have to make there. Yeah, I, I, I would, of course, say read it as well. It was, it's, it's very influential, but it's, it's enjoyable and interesting and engaging in its own right. Oh, yeah. So I still encourage people to read it. And... I would say that it's worth checking out the audiobook production. I really liked it. I I found it very useful. I found it... I wound up getting to 
I didn't get through all of it in the time I, I got it from the library and I didn't finish it in time. But the audiobook was easy enough to pick up and put down and work with for what I was doing that I was able to get back to where I was, re-listen to a section and keep going. And it felt smooth and it felt like it worked for me. So I, I liked the audiobook for it. I liked it as well, and I did listen to that for the first time recently. It annoyed me that it was presented as a a a full cast or nearly full cast audio in that they had the narrator, who was very good. And it was, I believe the primary narrator was uh, Scott Brick, who was very good. But they also had all of the other main characters cast with other actors providing voices, reading the dialogue from those characters. Which was great. Some of them were tremendous. The the guy they had doing the voice of um, uh, Baron Harkonnen was terrific. Oh yeah, but they weren't consistent. There would be a chapter in which we got these actors all doing the different actors all doing the dialogue of these characters, and then there would be a chapter where, like a typical audiobook the main narrator was doing all the dialogue as well and adjusting his voice to indicate different characters. But if you had all of these other actors cast for these roles in the book, why did you use them in some chapters and not others? It was kind of like one of those, uh, it was kind of like a, a story that has some illustrated pages alongside the other one where you get this full depiction scene for certain key moments that are popular. And I can understand that frustration. It didn't bother me as much because by the time though those illustrated moments with the full cast actually worked really well as start stop points for how I was listening to this section by section as I went. But I can understand what you mean if you've got them use them because they were good when they were doing it. I found it very distracting, especially with the character of Paul going back and forth between an actor who cast as Paul and the narrator, and even more so with uh, Baron Harkonnen, because the actor that they cast for Baron Harkonnen had this terrific voice, this big, rich, oily, intelligently sinister voice. It was just amazing. Mm, and then you get yeah. to another chapter, and when the, when the narrator is providing a voice for the character, and he's like a blustering English colonel in a J. Ward cartoon. It just doesn't have anywhere near the gravitas that this other actor did. Huh. It, it just didn't strike me as much, but I can understand exactly what you mean. And, you know, we didn't talk much about uh, Baron Harkonnen in talking about this. No, and I kind of think that works because, to be very honest, just how terrifying he is is one of those things that like, every time you turn a corner in this story, he's worse, and I don't <laughs> want to summarize what I think of him at the end of the book, because if you're gonna read this, having that unfurl as how <laughs> terrible and how terrifying is great. Okay. I almost don't want to, I don't want to ruin, not the surprise, but the depth. Yeah, we have, we have spoiled a lot about the book in this discussion, but that's something we can leave leave unstated he's a terrific impressive villain yeah he is he is he is excellent a plus villainy in that sense so we're both saying get read and or listen to the audiobook for this so 
The next question gets more challenging, and that yeah. is revive, reboot, or rest in peace. Now, revive would be continuing the story, which there's a lot of that. Yes. That ship has sailed. That 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 highliner has already folded space. That because oh. Frank Herbert wrote several sequels to Dune. Uh, there's Dune Messiah, there's Children of Dune, there's God Emperor of Dune. I think Chapter House Dune, which may have been published after he died, but based upon some stuff that he had yeah. written was the last of his. And then there's a whole expanded universe, a la Star Wars, that has lots of other novels, uh, backstories about the House of Atreides and all this stuff, and comics and things like that. So it's already been, it hasn't been rebooted. It's very rarely do you see a reboot of a novel in that sense. But it has certainly been revived in that the whole, as there's a lot of, of additional work that's supposedly in the same continuity. The reboot aspect really comes in its adaptation. Of course, the, the first movie attempt of it is, unfortunately, lost. And there's an entire wonderful <laughs> documentary about how wild and crazy that movie would have been. And just one moment, before we move off the revival, though, I do want to mention that those first sequels written by Frank Herbert, those are worth reading. Okay. I'd, I have not read Beyond Chapter House Dune. I can't speak to those. But yeah, if you enjoy Dune, go ahead and read Dune Messiah and Children of Dune and, and God Emperor. Okay. But yeah, you were saying about the movies. Uh, there was a first movie, which was lost. It didn't happen. But the documentary about it, it's great. Yeah, we might have to talk about that at some point. That might be a side a bonus. Todorovsky's Dune is amazing. Yeah, Jodorowsky Jodorowsky's is an Dune. amazing, uh, weird person. Ex just weird enough to try to make a, an adaptation of Dune in the 70s. And so instead, we got David Lynch's Dune, which uh, is something I've not seen, but that's that holds a shadow almost as big as Dune itself, and its interactions with Dune the novel are a whole thing we could dive another episode into it's almost tempting to to do an episode about david lynch's dune uh i saw that in a the theater when it came out and that was around 2000 uh, excuse me that was around uh, 1984 i think well an amazing year i have not seen it so we so we can hold off about that because that gives you something you can show me in the future <laughs> yes i will the only thing i'll say about that then is that I have come to regard it more highly as filmmaking, putting aside how I feel about it as an adaptation of the novel. And it was very interesting in uh, reading David Lynch's memoir last year. When talking about Dune, he considers that a failure. And the main reason is that he didn't get final cut of the movie. He didn't have full control over it. It's the last movie he ever agreed to do without having... a a say over the final edit. Huh. So we've got that. We've got Yodorowsky's Dune that never was, and then we've got David Lynch's Dune. And Alan Smithy's Dune, which is the extended version of David Lynch's Dune that he took his name off. And now we've got the new version coming out, which I'm intrigued to see what'll happen. Uh, this is recorded before it's out. This is probably, I think, released before it's out, and I'm interested to see what it'll be, because I don't know how well it'll adapt, but it's, I'm going to actually wind up saying rest in peace in light of all of that, though, because 
there's nothing like text that's going to be able to get the depth we were talking about. In order to have all of those little bits, all those little grains that make up Dune, metaphor for the win here, you need that specificity text allows. The spoken audiobook keeps that because it's using the words from the book, but there's so much little tiny bits and little tiny phrases and moments and callbacks that all make this story as deep as it is. And you have to lose some of that somewhere to change it into something else. So I don't think it needs those other things. I would agree. I'm interested in the other adaptation that's coming out. But when it comes to a novel, let it rest in peace. We don't need it revived. We don't, I don't need more sequels to it. I don't think we need anything like a reboot, whatever that would look like. Um, in, it should rest in peace. In some ways, the new one is getting to do a reboot, from what I understand. It's getting to make the first Dune with the later stuff in mind as well, so it's integrated. Oh. And there's talk about a tie-in TV show that does, like, Benny Gesserit history as a TV show thing that's being built at the same time as the movie. So maybe the fact that it gets to step back and look at Dune, the franchise, and pull it all together instead of the the interspersed thing it became, maybe that's where it can do that reboot you're describing. Yeah, that's an interesting way to look at it. I guess that you can see that as a reboot because you've got the benefit of that hindsight, knowing the details that hadn't yet been fixed when the first novel came out. Oh, yeah. There's definitely things where that sort of write chapter five and then go back and rewrite chapter one <laughs> as a reboot can be great. Yep. I I note the Digimon Adventure new anime that just like decided, <laughs> oh, wow, Digimon the third season decided to absolutely change how deep we and, and scary we can go. What if we rewrote the first one like using that? That'll be fun. <laughs> it was kind of great. And now we get to reference Digimon in our Dune thing somehow, but it's an <laughs> example of doing that with hindsight that I liked. I like it. So I think that's uh, that's going to be it for now. I think we could talk for a lo- even longer about Dune. Oh, absolutely. But, and uh, and I'm sure that we will when, when the uh, microphones are off. But uh, as far as this episode, I think that wraps it up. But we will be back in a couple of weeks with uh, with more tales of media from the 20th century. In the meantime, Dad, where can they find you online? Uh, you can find me most places as by Matthew Porter. So at bymatthewporter.com, on Twitter as by Matthew Porter, and on Twitch by Matthew Porter, YouTube by Matthew Porter, and you'll find links to all of those at that matthewporter.com. And Ian, where can people find you? I can be found as item crafting most places, be that item crafting on Twitter, item crafting live on Twitch. And you can find the podcast itself uh, on Twitter as IMMPcast. And you can find us online at immproject.com. And that's where you will find links to our contact page, to our Patreon. Uh, Thank you very much if you can support us there. It helps us keep the podcast going. Uh, Link to our store uh, where you can buy coffee mugs and T-shirts and other interesting things. And you'll find there links to all of our past episodes. And if you do write to us either at the contact page on immproject.com or at immpcast at gmail.com. Let us know if it's okay to read your email on the podcast and share it with uh, the rest of the listeners. So thanks very much for downloading. Thanks very much for listening. And we will be back soon. In the meantime, 
go find something new to watch.